0: Um, We can't and we won't and we shouldn't try to save the world all alone. The the type of deep rooted social change that's needed is something that we can only figure out together.
1: Welcome to the fourth episode of Sprouting Conversations. I am your host Flajla Warren, and this is a podcast where we chat with different youth in our community about food related topics. In this episode, we are chatting with Hannah, where we talk about barriers to growing food, food access, and also explore the intersection of food, sustainability, and capitalism. I hope you like this episode. My first question for you is, can you introduce yourself in any way that that means to you today?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so my name is Hannah. Uh, I'm currently working as the site and education assistant for the summer season here at the Compass Education Centre, uh, which is located in Fernwood uh, on the Kwangan Territories. And maybe a little bit about my journey that brought me to this position. Um, I grew up in Mi'kmaq Territory on the beautiful East Coast uh, in Nova Scotia. And I was really privileged throughout my childhood to be able to spend a lot of time outdoors in different contexts. Uh, so that looked like going on weekend camping trips with my family, um, going on long walks with my grandfather, who was a freelance environmentalist, and he would teach me how to forage for wild mushrooms. And we would pick berries and check out tadpoles in the rivers and beautiful things like that. Um and so I think that these experiences throughout my childhood began to foster like a really deep connection to place and appreciation for the natural world. Um, another thread that kind of ran throughout my childhood is being really aware of things that were going on in the world and that not being shielded from uh, my eyes by my parents or anything like that. I remember watching the news every morning uh, growing up and... Sure enough, by the time I was fourteen or fifteen, I remember having a lot of concern about the state of the world and a lot of feelings of anger and fear, particularly about environmental degradation, but also about social injustices that I saw all around me um, and so in in my younger years, I think that this like i didn't know how to think systemically about these issues, uh, and so I very much saw them um as a result of individual laziness or individual selfishness uh, or greed or hate. Uh, And so this manifested in in a lot of negativity, I think, in the way that I saw the world and and rolled out into social isolation and feeling really disconnected from people around me. And so sure enough, when I was 18 – As soon as I finally graduated high school, I had it in my head that I was going to get as far away as I could from my hometown and from the people who I felt like I didn't connect with. And I'd heard that the West Coast was a place where people were environmentally minded and socially progressive. And so I kind of like put my finger on the map and decided to go as far west as I could. Um, So that's kind of what brought me here. And I pursued a degree in environmental studies at the University of Victoria, uh, and I'm now in my fourth year of that degree. And kind of the focus of my studies would be political ecology in general and sustainable food systems, social change movements, education, more specifically. Um, and so in the in-betweens of all that, I've also worked as an outdoor educator um, for pretty much every summer since high school in different contexts, uh, and all of those things led me to this role at the complex education Center now, um which is yeah, it's an amazing place to be and an incredible team of uh really cool folks to work with here.
1: Mm. Wow, yeah, I love hearing <clears throat> about your your childhood, and it sounds like it was such a great like balance of being able to see the real what's really happening in this world and the issues and what's happening around you, but then also mm-hmm. getting to connect with it and like have that balance of like. You know, I'm seeing these problems, but I'm also seeing like what what it's worth and what is mm-hmm. why why I'm here and why I'm trying to save it. So that was really, really nice to hear.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I think the point that you bring up is is really key where without having that love for the natural world and love for people like my family members and my closest friends, um, it's it's hard to feel motivated to stay in a world that seems to be full of so much hate, and destruction, and injustice. So I think that that piece of also being really in love with the world
1: is so important to
0: mm-hmm. be motivated
1: as a change maker. Absolutely. Yeah. And kind of on the same topic of childhood, um, my fun question for you is, what was your favorite food growing up?
0: Mm-hmm. Um, I love this question. Yeah. Um, I don't know if it was necessarily like my all-time favorite food, but I have my strongest food memory from my childhood, as I remember spending two weeks with my paternal grandparents every summer, and then I would actually spend two weeks with my maternal grandparents as well, um, but um, my grandma grew lots and lots of pots of basil on her porch, and that was about the only thing she gardened, um, but for lunch most days, she would make me these sandwiches with mayonnaise cheese tomato and fresh basil and i would go down to this little dock by the lake and i would sit there and eat them probably with a side of pickles uh and i have really fond memories of those sandwiches and i still kind of
1: recreate various versions of them to this day i have never tried that type of sandwich i Mm -hmm. I feel like i must now that sounds so good it's key that you toast the bread i would really recommend that part yeah that's good information (laughs) to know yeah I love how whenever I ask this question, it's n- no one really gives me just like one food. It's always like a memory attached with it. And it's, mm-hmm. it's really nice. Absolutely, mm-hmm.
0: It makes me want to like ask you in return. <laughs> <laughs> Mine
1: was always anything breakfast related. Like mm-hmm. I'm to this day, I will I can spend like an hour prepping my breakfast because like that was just I remember always waking up and just like feeling so full and excited for my day and just like the act of. Fueling myself for that was like so exciting. Nice,
0: like, yeah. It's I like mean, if n- if nothing else goes right today, at least my breakfast did. Exactly.
1: <laughs> the first thing I do has to be great within my day. Um, mm-hmm. So kind of similar back to like what we were just talking about beforehand about you know like loving the land and being connected with it as like a way to motivate yourself as a change maker. I'm mm-hmm. curious what your relationship with food is. Hmm.
0: Yeah, this is such an interesting question. Um, And I could say honestly that over the years, my relationship with food has been really complicated. Uh, I kind of alluded to some turmoil in my high school years, which I think many of us who feel like we don't quite fit in experience. Um, And I remember during those years, Having really obsessive habits around food, like what you could definitely label as disordered eating. And I think that food became one of the realms where I saw that I could control something in my life, that I had control over my own body and what I put into it. And I'm lucky that I even had that. Not everyone does. Um, but since it was one realm of control, um, I remember becoming really obsessive about what I ate and making choices between this or that and what was best for the environment and what was best for my health. And, and it really, um, spiraling into pretty intense and anxiety inducing habits around food. Um, and I would say that part of, uh, my experience in moving away from my hometown after high school and, and coming here to the West coast, um, Something that really began to change my relationship with food was uh, in my first year of university, I was randomly assigned to live in this little townhouse on campus with three incredible roommates um, who, like luck of the draw, I had so much in common with and and shared worries with and shared values with. Uh, And this common thread between us all was that we were all really big foodies um part of, part of my obsession with food was that I'd actually become a really good cook because I wouldn't let anyone else feed me. I had to cook all my own food. Um, and so I had really learned to cook and, and in some ways loved food and loved cooking. Uh, and this was something that I shared in common with all of my new roommates. Uh, and so as opposed to becoming only this source of isolation and disconnect and anxiety, food began to become one of my main facets of social connection. Um, we would like cook big dinners together every Sunday and we would have a different theme every week and we would invite friends over. Uh, and I went on to live with those same roommates for a number of years afterwards and food stayed as a big part of our social circles. Um, and I think from, from that point of experiencing food as something that can really draw people together across various different social divides, it's something so universal, uh, and such a simple source of pleasure um, that I, I began to become more involved in food related activism. Um, one of the, the main things I did early on is my involvement with the community cabbage, which is a club at UVic, which we can maybe talk about later on. Um, but then that kind of stemmed into leading some workshops on campus about fermenting and sprouting. And so I started to really embrace food as, yeah, as an agent of change and as a way that I began to connect with people and heal myself at the same time. Um, Yeah, that would be a little bit
1: about my personal relationships. Wow. Thank you so much for that authenticity and that answer. And I I totally relate. And I went through similar experiences and it's so true that it was that disconnect from people and belonging Mm -hmm. that really, really pushed me further in a spiral. And so it's so true when it's, you know, when you're forced to be out in community and be with people and share meals. It's like you reconnect with that teaching, whatever that may have been for you. But Mm -hmm. for me, like it was a big teaching that you eat with, you share food with people and the people you love and then you'd feel that. And so it kind of helped me heal too, is like that feeling of love when I'm eating and like retraining my brain how to relate with food. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. I love asking that question so much because everyone has such different, Experiences and upbringings with food. And it's such a complicated thing, as you said. You know, Mm -hmm. there's no simple way to explain your relationship with it. Mm Absolutely. So I'd love to talk too about um, before our interview right now, we we were talking a bit about your work at Compost Education Center. Mm -hmm. And I was really, really interested in what you were saying about your rethinking sustainable living and like that learning module. And I was really hoping you could speak a little bit about that work and what that project will look like. For sure. I would be so happy to.
0: Um, so in my work over the past few months here at the Compost Education Centre, um, one of the main projects that I've been working on uh, is part of our education program. So normally we would go into classrooms and lead hundreds of workshops for school age students every year around topics of composting and sustainable agriculture. Um But this year, of course, things are looking very different for all of us. And and so I pursued a project to create an online learning module uh, that can be used for remote learning. It can be used by classroom teachers, but like with a big um, home learning component. Um, And it's geared towards high school age students. So sort of grades 8 to 12 would be the target audience. Uh, And the premise of this learning module um, is an experiential Uh, journey of learning um, along the lines of rethinking sustainable living, rethinking what it looks like uh, to live and act in ways that are like, quote unquote, good for the environment. Um, Mm -hmm. I feel like uh, where this project stemmed from is actually a reworking of an older previous workshop that we had here that was just called Sustainable Lifestyles. Really basic uh, personal lifestyle changes you can do to save the environment or stop climate change or whatever the catchy slogan is, and so um, I, I looked at that module and thought about how, like in my younger years in high school, like I had very much latched on to all of those ideas of individual actions we can take to solve these enormous global issues, um, and that's very much the narrative that I think is fed to many young people and, and adults alike, uh, is that we see ourselves as individuals, and it's up to us to make or break the climate crisis. Uh, And many young people aren't taught to think about these things systemically, um, as rooted in social, economic, and political systems um, that really accumulate wealth and power for a small number of people, uh, regardless of the effect for the environment or for social well-being. Uh, And those systems are really what's that the root of the climate crisis. It's the settler colonial capitalist state. Uh, it's not individual people's poor choices in terms of not being vegan or not biking to work, um, and and I think in a way when we perpetuate that narrative that it is our individual choices, um, it really distracts from meaningful change, and at the same time can induce a lot of guilt anxiety fear sadness for young people when when they're told that it's the way that they're choosing to live their lives which they may or may not even have control over it's probably the only way they've ever known how to live um and when they're told that it's those actions that are at the root of these issues when really it's not it's it's that they're woven into this very complex story um that's that's played out over time um and is very rooted in social systems, which we can still go about changing as individuals, um, but it's not about the the carbon footprint of uh, a certain choice to bike rather than drive. Um, So that's really what this module is attempting to challenge. And the way that it's set up uh, is it walks students through a number of experiential activities that are kind of categorized into land, food, food. like consumerism or stuff, I call it, uh, and then inspiration or creativity. Um, mm-hmm. And so within each of those categories, there's hands-on activities that aren't just about, oh, how how much less carbon does this choice produce than that choice, um, but is about the meaning behind the activities. Um, so maybe to give an example, um, One in the land section is teaching about uh, the importance of native plants and um, how invasive plants are ones that have been introduced here and often yield negative ecological consequences. Um, And then walk students through how they could take on a small ecological restoration project in their own neighborhood Mm. and what the value of uh, propagating native plants is um, when, when they pull out those invasives. Um, then there's like one in the creativity section encourages students to make a multimedia collage of the ideal future they would want to be a part of, um, mm-hmm. drawing on aspects of justice and sustainability and, and encourages them to envision like what kind of world they do want to live in and what they want to help create. Um, so it's trying to move away from your like really typical, um, like shift in consumer choices as being the solution to global issues and and trying to get at a more deep-rooted approach um, that hopefully is more inspiring and motivating and kind of debunks some of those myths of our individual responsibility to solve these enormous global issues that really aren't our individual fault and it's not even helpful to try to approach them those ways.
1: Hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, really, really awesome work that you're doing that sounds so amazing and I I really love what you said about um you know so often it's always put on the individual like you said and for me growing up it was exactly that same way and how much like little power you have in that and how it's it's so straining to like go through this and do everything right on individual level like ride your bike and do change your Mm -hmm. diet to like work. And then you just don't see any change and it's so painful. But then for me, when I started to get in like the larger systemic activism, then you feel like your power comes back. And Mm -hmm. so giving that to young people, I really, really love that. And I think that's so powerful of how experiential this whole project is. And the module is all hands-on and being there and being a part of community and really, really seeing it firsthand.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm. I'm glad that you can relate to the intention behind it. I think it also stemmed from my experiences of the little bits of environmental education I did receive in public school growing up. Um, which, yeah, we're we're always perpetuating that individualized idea, uh, and straining is is a great word to use. That it, it's exhausting, it's isolating, uh, mm-hmm. and and it never feels like enough because it never is. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So, so those are the things that are trying to be challenged, and it it definitely was more difficult than I had thought to distill those things like into a level that can really be grasped by fourteen year olds um, who are maybe uh, relatively new to these issues. So, it was a great challenge for me to try to try to simplify these really complex issues um, into like really readable language and. Mm-hmm. And into stories that young people can relate to and, and understand why it matters. Um, so it's it's been a really good learning experience for me as well in creating this module. Uh, and I'm really proud of the work that's come out of it. So mm-hmm. I, I believe it's planning to be released sometime in September and will be available to parents or educators, whoever might like to use it um, with their
1: students. And mm-hmm. is it going to just be found on like the website for free or is it like offered to schools in specific specifically or anything?
0: Yeah, um, we're still working out the details of the distribution module, but it'll likely be available through the website and probably will be uh, at a relatively low cost, but behind some sort of paywall um, Mm -hmm. because it's replacing the workshops that we normally lead, which um, teachers and schools do pay for. So it's been a really big loss of that revenue source for the Compass education center. And so we're trying to replace those learning materials, Um, with other options, Um, but you'll probably have options to buy an individual booklet for a home learner or like a class set to use with an entire um, school or something like that.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm honestly just asking for myself because this sounds so cool and I'd love to check it out.
0: (laughs) Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, I'm glad that you're interested in it.
1: Yeah, definitely. And similar on this topic, uh, beforehand we were talking and as this conversation has been unfolding, we bring it up a lot is the individualization and in one of our conversations before you talked about hyper individualization of environmental mm-hmm. responsibility and like i'm sure this term is so new to so many people and i just love if you can explain what that means and like i think we've already given so many examples of it but just kind of like review the harm in that
0: mm-hmm. yeah um the hyper-individualization of environmental responsibility sounds like a really big term. You're totally, totally. right. <laughs> um, but what it's getting at is all the ways in which really a, a capitalist system puts the burden of social or environmental issues onto us as individuals. Uh, because under capitalism, we're always seen as individual consumers um, and basic economic theory says that every individual consumer will always try to maximize their own self-interest and that we're atomized individuals and and we always act in that way trying to get the most wealth uh, and power for ourselves and so that idea of individualization that exists uh, under capitalism very much extends into the ways we're taught to act out um, to counter environmental issues and so All the classic examples, which we already discussed of the things we're told to do in our lives um, to save the environment. Uh, It it shifts that burden from the corporations, the governments, the individuals who hold massive amounts of wealth and power. And like those folks or those organizations are really the people um, who have the control in these systems because of how much power and wealth they've amassed under capitalism. Um, But instead of us looking at um, these issues as a result of this capitalist system, we're taught to look at them as good consumers and buy this product instead of that product and get an electric car and get rid of your gas car. Um, And interestingly, of course, like the more environmentally choices always seem to cost more money or be less convenient, Mm -hmm. um, which is just creating new markets for capitalism. Um, So Mm -hmm. when we buy an electric car instead of a gas car, we're creating a whole new industry for people to accumulate wealth by selling electric cars. Uh, And in those ways, we're actually not helping the roots of the issue at all. We're perpetuating the systems that have created um, these crises in the first place. Uh, So it's sometimes a bit of a wake up call to think about it that way. Uh, And, Mm Like, I, I still try to make good choices as well, sometimes just so that I feel less guilty or so I feel like I'm trying. Um, and it's fair to, to still try to make personal choices that are good for the environment from those places. Uh, but I think it's not fair to ourselves and it's also not true to ourselves um, to say that it's those choices that are going to make or break the climate crisis or other various issues that um, stem from those same places. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that's kind of the sense of hyper individualization. Uh, it's, it's how capitalism tells us to counter global crises. And, and if we listen to it, uh, and, and actually just believe that it's shifting our consumer choices and our personal lifestyles that will solve it, uh, we're not doing much at all to, to help the issue. And in some ways, we're probably further entrenching them into our, our culture and our values.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I wish you could just like see my face right now. I'm like nodding. I'm like, yes, like that. It. <laughs> <laughs> and it's so true. It, it really comes down to shifting the blame and putting it off the people that are, resp- I don't want to say responsible, but the larger systems that are continuously doing this harm and,
0: you
1: mm-hmm. know, you know who you know, are responsible and, you know, rather than putting it on us and Yeah, I think it's really important. And then also noticing, I really like that you said, like, you know, sometimes we still do these, like, we fall into these habits of, like, doing the the best consumer choice for environmentalism because it's out of, like, habit and guilt. And, like, we're Mm -hmm. still working in these systems that are telling us to do it. And it's so hard not to. Yeah, I'm, we can... I'm sure we could like talk about this topic for like ever and I love it and I love these conversations for that reason because I can just like mm-hmm. go on for like three hours but I would love to shift gears into another topic that I was really curious to talk to you about um, because you mentioned in the past about some of the barriers you were facing in growing food and I can so relate to that on like accessibility level and being a young person and how challenging it can be to face these barriers so I'd love to hear about your journey through this and both like the good and bad with growing food for you
0: Mm mm-hmm yeah. Thank you for asking that. Um, so I I did speak to a bit how my paths kind of take me into seeing food as a really valuable source of connection. I think we're both people who relate on that. And it's an incredibly powerful tool for social change since we can mm-hmm. get so many people to connect with land and connect with each other through food. It's such a fundamental human need. Um, and so, of course, I grew up with big backyard gardens. My mom is a big gardener and my grandfather was before her. Um, and so I've always been theoretically very interested in growing food, um, both for, for the environmental benefits of having really local food produced with regenerative practices, um, and then also for uh, like the social values of feeling connected to the place where you are, being in tune with the seasons, um, Gardening is such a great thing to do with friends. And when you have an abundance of produce, you can invite people over and share with them. Um, so there's all these wonderful things that can be wrapped up in the ability to grow your own food. Um, but something we've actually been talking a lot about here at the Compost Education Center, and I've experienced and thought about in my own life, is the fact that like growing food is not apolitical. Um, like there's so much that's wrapped up in who does and doesn't have access to land and the ability and the time to grow food. Um, and so like a few things I can speak to just from my position as a student and as a young person, um, obviously one of the most, um, prevalent barriers is access to land. Um, -hmm. like you need likely a yard or at least like, um, a big open space with plenty of sunlight um, in order to even begin thinking about growing food. Uh, and as someone who in my entire adult life has only ever been a renter um, and living in a place with such a competitive rental market, there are many, many houses or landlords who don't permit renters to grow food. They don't permit you to, to even put a shovel in the ground or begin thinking about doing things like that. Um So that's an immediate barrier that's, of course, even more exasperated when people are, for example, living in apartment buildings uh, where they don't have access to a yard at all. Um, And so those are some huge barriers, uh, which we're just starting to really talk about at the Compost Education Center and are trying to think about how can our work, which focuses around agriculture and composting, how can this reach so many people in our community who don't have backyards for a big compost bin and don't have garden um beds in the ground. Um, how can we still make food growing relevant to them and accessible to them? Um, other sort of barriers that I've experienced uh, is even just the fact that like growing food requires that you're rooted in a place. Um, mm-hmm. I've always worked summer contracts and like gone up north on the island and worked um, at an outdoor education center there for four months. And your garden's going to wither away if you don't water it for four months. Um, so, of course, you need to be rooted in a place and kind of committed to staying there if you're going to invest the time and energy to try to build soil and put seeds in the ground. And um, so, I'd say, even, yeah, that barrier of having to be committed to a place is hard for some young people who are still trying to figure out where their path's going to take them and where they can find work and et cetera, et cetera. Um, so yeah, I feel like those are such big immediate barriers that get talked about so little in food growing circles. Um, yeah, and, mm-hmm. and trying to think through how we can begin to reduce those barriers um, and have more people who are able uh, and excited to grow food.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's so true. And the, the barriers you mentioned too, like, they're not even just like youth that go through it and young people. It's like across the whole lifespan, access to land, and, you know, having the time capacity and being put somewhere, it's like, always, mm-hmm. a, always a struggle. So it's such a prevalent issue. And so I'm I'm so happy to hear that these conversations are coming up for you at the Compost Education Center. And I'd love to hear if anyone within your work or yourself had any, like, ideas or ways around that that you have been brainstorming.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of my co-workers, uh, Zoe Blue, who is also... Uh, been a summer intern over the past couple of months. She's been doing a lot of really cool work around that. And she's an avid house plant owner herself and lives in an apartment. So has never had access to like a backyard garden um, for like large scale food growing or anything. Um, But still sees herself as an ecological steward and as someone who's so passionate about plants and about the natural world. And so some of the projects that she's been doing um, one is piloting a model for an indoor composter that you can uh, make in a cardboard box. So it's super low barrier. Uh, it like costs 10 bucks or whatever to set up um, and you can compost food scraps in your apartment. So that's something she's still experimenting with and figuring out the best practices for. Um, but those are like that's a resource that we would love to be able to offer to the community. Um, And we have tons of free information about various things. We would just post it on our website as as a free resource. Um, So that could be like a way for people to be involved in the cycle of waste management and composting their own food scraps. Um, And then she's even thinking about um, developing a zine all about uh, like indoor ecological stewardship. Um, so like how to feel connected to the earth when you're not actually on the ground, like she is mm. in an apartment building. Um, and so um, other ideas that I know she's been thinking about for that zine are around like how to create your own potting mixes for houseplants using this compost you've made in an indoor composter um, and, and different things along that. So that's kind of one way that we're trying to look at how can we reduce the barriers to, to land access um and how how can we give people ideas for how they can grow food uh and feel connected to place even if they don't have a backyard um other other kind of ideas that have been floating around in our heads um uh, one that i personally feel really passionate about is is the power of community gardens um mm. one of my really good friends uh Sid is a coordinator at the Uvic community garden um and I know that they find so much value in their work there. And um, even though they don't necessarily have enough plots for everyone in the community or nearly even as many people who would be interested in having one, they have communal plots there um, where students and other people in the community can come and, and use those spaces to grow food, uh, either for themselves or to donate um, to different community projects. Um, So, yeah, trying to figure out how we can have communal spaces and more of them in our communities for growing food. Um, Because I think it's actually inherently problematic even that the ability to grow food is wrapped up with private land ownership, that you need Mm -hmm. to own a piece of land, which we all know is stolen anyway, So to lay claim to a piece of land for your own ability to grow food and, and perhaps profit from it as most farmers do. Uh, so I think that that in itself is, is problematic and that food should be something that is shared communally and is a universal human right. And it's not something that's treated as a commodity um, and that you have to have capital or land access uh, in order to even begin producing. Mm-hmm. So it's, yeah, I, I feel like these conversations get into to much bigger ideas that are really interesting to begin tearing apart um i'm curious if you have ideas um because you you mentioned that you also have experienced some barriers to growing food throughout your life as so many of us have and do you have ideas for how we could begin reducing them here
1: Mm -hmm. yeah first i wanted to say too like i all your ideas are so great and like so tangible and like really can support right away and i think for me most of my ideas i'm so glad you asked this i feel like i'm Mm -hmm. answering questions (laughs) now this is exciting um for me, a lot of my connection is through like actually being on land and connecting to it. And that has been, for me, a really big thing. And learning from my family, like I'm living on the, fam- on the land, like Lekwungen Territory, that my family has been on since time immemorial. So I've had every week I go on these really great nature walks and feel connected and just really, really get that connection to place and family through that. Mm-hmm. And like through doing that work, I've really, I've chi- I've shifted my whole mindset in food and understanding and relating with it. And I have like, for me, my big passion is like land stewardship and restoration work. And so that mm-hmm. has been a way for me to challenge those views around food and just seeing them as like these perfect little plots of land in your garden and like, you know, arranged so perfectly. Like for me, food, when I think of food, I think of like in the middle of the woods all these different plants that are edible and no one knows about it and ethically harvesting and doing all these different practices that connect me with it and then eating it and, or being on like within the ocean and fishing. And so for me, a big thing that I've been doing is just like, supporting land and supporting it to grow and doing that work so that eventually it would be abundant everywhere. And hopefully sharing that knowledge of like which plants are edible and which ones aren't so that, When you are, like, going in the woods or you're hungry, you can just go and find something to eat and change that stigma to it. Like, I'm shocked. For me, like, foraging food has always been a practice in my life, and I've always, like, been aware of it and known kind of which plants to eat, which ones aren't. And I've recently, like, been talking to some friends who don't pick anything because like that's just like the mindset that they were raised with, that mm-hmm. if it's grown outside, it's unsafe. Like I have some friends that don't even like pick blackberries and mm-hmm. like, I, I don't really pick blackberries either just because like I, they're so invasive or I'll pick them and like tear them out after. But yeah, yeah, I, it's just so interesting to me that that is common and like that has only recently come to my attention. So a big way to relieve these barriers is just changing the way we view gardening and expanding it and seeing that how interconnected gardening it should be or like when we think of gardening we should think about land restoration as well you know those <laughs> things shouldn't be so separate so that for me is like a really big big thing for me and then i really liked hearing about like i've had a lot of similar ideas around like relationship with food and like with the zine and connecting with plants although you may not have access to that because i i'm so lucky i've been so graced with beautiful places in my life that I've been able to rent that are so close to land and connected with it but I like Mm -hmm. I recognize that that is such a privilege and I I cannot imagine not having like woods or water right down the street like that's unbelievable to me so I'm that's still something that I'm brainstorming and figuring out ways that I can prepare and like support people who don't have that and like Mm -hmm. help people be on land and connect with land. And like, I think a big way too through doing that is like through stories and, you know, like reading books that are about land or like talking with your family about your, the connection to land that you have in whatever way that means for you. And I really think that that is what inspires people to find ways to grow and then like look at the larger systems too. And then recognize like, Hey, it hasn't always been like this that we'd have these little plots in front of our woods mm-hmm. or in front of our houses, you know like what yeah. what was yeah. it like beforehand, and then explore all the beautiful agricultural techniques that have existed beyond beyond us and what those look like and how they are made for this land that we're on,
0: yeah, yeah, I'm so glad that you brought that up and like exploded the idea of what agriculture even is <laughs> uh because you're so right, like even the way that we see like food as this thing you need to meticulously cultivate uh, in like an open sunny area and that it can't occur in like natural intact systems. Mm-hmm. Um, even that is so so problematic and so valuable to begin uh, challenging and exploring alternative ways of being that have existed for far longer. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah,
1: I'm so glad that that you brought that up as well. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for asking the question. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I'm kind of just through like this conversation. I, I'd i love to hear because we we're talking about relationship to like food and I really loved how in detail you went. I'm so curious like what your journey has been like if you have like started growing food and if that's like changed your relationship with yourself. Because I know for me, like when I first started to grow my own food, it was transformative and just like thinking about self-sufficiency and relying and on myself and sovereignty over my body. Like that was mm-hmm. really, really big for me. So I'd love to hear about that experience for you.
0: Yeah. Thank you for asking. Um, so I'm very excited to say that in April, uh, in the like midst of the COVID pandemic, I had to move out of my old basement suite, uh, and moved into this little tiny bungalow with four roommates uh, and you kind of have to live with that many people to be able to afford a place with a nice yard. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we finally have this house that has a really beautiful backyard and a landlord who will let us do whatever we like with it. Um, mm-hmm. so we've collectively tore out this big invasive hedge cause it was the sunniest spot in the yard and, and established some garden beds there, uh, And admittedly, it was a very sluggish start to the season um, because we we, hadn't even built soil and it was April and we were so excited to put seeds in the ground. So we kind of did this sheet mulching thing where you layer uh, different organic materials that aren't even broken down yet. So we were putting like straw and seaweed and leaves and all this stuff. Uh, And then we covered it with a couple inches of topsoil that we had purchased from this industrial soil place. Um, and we planted into these couple inches of topsoil with all this organic matter underneath that hadn't hadn't decomposed yet. <laughs> um, and at first, it really wasn't going so well. We were pretty discouraged. Um, but in the past month or two, it's exploded. Uh, and we've got such an abundance of food coming out of these couple of little plots now. Um, and I, I feel like part of me feels like I've spent way too much time in this like 10 by 10 square of land (laughs) uh, cultivating these food plants Uh, but it's been such a wonderful experience it's been yeah this summer has really been the first time in my life that I've really felt connected to a food producing system Uh, and very in tune with it even that like in the morning I'll like take my tea out to the yard and just like look and observe what's going on and kind of see which Mm. plants are doing well and which ones aren't Um, so it's been really exciting and maybe to speak a bit to like how it feels like it's begun to change me. Um, I all of a sudden have this thing that's holding me in a place, uh, where I don't want to get up and move and accept a job contract in a different city next summer. And I feel a lot more rooted, um, because I'm connected to the land that I'm living on and we've begun to build good soil and, and understand how the light plays out in this yard. Um, and it's making me feel a lot more drawn to staying uh, and, and not really wanting to participate in this rampant culture of nomadism and of travel and of always going somewhere else to find some better job or better experience. Um, but, but really wanting to stay here for a bit and continue to cultivate that connection with this place. Um, and I, I think it feels so different when the place begins to love you back. And support you in in return, um, such as with growing food and then being able to harvest from the land right beside you uh, and be nourished by it. So it totally changes how I how I feel connected to this place that I'm definitely not from, um, but I'm now feeling really interested in in staying and in working through the challenges that this place has and in learning more about this land. Um, and about what this place needs. So definitely having my hands in the dirt and growing food has made me feel more rooted uh, and more motivated uh, to
1: stay in this place. Wow, that's so beautiful that you bring that up. And I think that's so true. And I love how much you talked about, for you, gardening hasn't been this thing where you're waiting for the food to come up and then you eat it and like that's all it is like no it's a relationship and it's like a two-way street where you know you're feeding it and it feeds you and hearing you like say that like you when the land loves you back and how that feels and when you feel that in your heart and I really think that that for me too is like a very transformative moment of just feeling that deep connection of like I'm not just, like, for me, I talk to my plants all the time. Like, I'm (laughs) always out there just, like, talking about my day and, like, telling them how much I love them and, you know, having that food come up. It's, like, you feel that love in it and, like, feeling heard through that. You know, like, honestly, I think my plants are, like, my counselors for how much (laughs) I talk to them. And, like, the food that they give me is, like, their way of responding of, like, you know, yes, I hear you and now I'm going to nourish you. I'm going to give you something you need to survive Mm -hmm. and continue this. And so... Yeah, I think hearing people's experiences with gardening and how much it can change them is just so mm-hmm. beautiful and how much power it gives you over yourself. It's so good.
0: Uh what you just said brings up this kind of hilarious memory for me that I would love to quickly share and it's uh one of my former roommates who's a really good friend of mine. She was like a really avid houseplant person. Um and would nurture all these little houseplants from cuttings and stuff and uh I remember walking into the kitchen one night, like late at night, and she's over at the windowsill with this potted houseplant. And she's like, (sighs) like breathing on the houseplant. I was like, what are you, what are you doing? Uh, And she kind of like looks a little bit guilty and like surprised that I'm there. And she (laughs) says, well, like... I really want to love them, but like, I can't water them anymore. Like if I give it more water, it'll be too much for today. (gasps) I'm trying to give it carbon dioxide because plants really like carbon dioxide. Uh, And I just thought that was so sweet and tender that she just like needed to love this plant. But they knew she couldn't really do anything else for it right now. But this was like this really adorable
1: expression of love. Oh, my God. That's the cutest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> I I feel like I'm going to do that now. and I, I, yeah, I hate to admit that. that. <laughs> yeah. That's so cute. Yeah. Oh, wow. I love that so much. <laughs> okay. Well, I don't want to take up too much of your time. And yeah, I really would love to cover this next topic too. So I hate mm-hmm. to change this beautiful, rich conversation, but I would love to touch base with you a little bit on your work, working with the UVic Community Cabbage. So I'd love if you can like share a little bit about what that group is for people who don't know and what, why you're doing this important work.
0: Mm-hmm. Of course, yeah. So the um, Diva Community Cabbage was kind of my like first step into the food justice world in this place. Uh, and it's a club on campus that was started a number of years ago by a really passionate group of students. And the premise of this group is that Uh, Every week, a big group of uh, folks get together and go dumpster diving. Um, So you're going into the dumpsters behind grocery stores uh, and collecting all the very edible produce that's been discarded by the industrial food system. Um, And so they collect up uh, huge hauls of produce most nights um, and bring it back uh, to the central meeting place Um, We use like a community kitchen space. And then the following day, uh, we wash and chop and prepare all this reclaimed food um, into a a big hot meal. And we tend to do vegetarian cooking because, of course, it's kind of safer to pull veggies from the dumpster than meat, which might be expired. Mm. Uh, And it also makes our food accessible to everyone pretty much, um, that we have options that meet everyone's dietary restrictions. So we cook this huge meal uh, and then we take it to campus and we serve a big free meal in front of the student union building. Um, And it's really beautiful to kind of see the community that unfolds around cooking and sharing food together uh, where people Mm -hmm. will kind of like stop in between classes and sit at the picnic tables or sit on the the lawn uh, and enjoy this hot lunch together rather than just like eating it in lecture hall when the prof's not looking. Um, And so on one hand, like the community cabbage, uh, is raising awareness about the like total injustice of food waste that happens in our society, and the fact that there's so much abundance that is discarded for the sake of keeping food prices high, uh, because of course, when something seems scarce, you can charge more for it. Um, mm-hmm. And really, there's so much of it being uh, thrown out that's not even redistributed in any way. So, raising awareness about that issue. Um, which is often very, very eye-opening when people first join us and go dumpster diving, even just hear about what we do and, and look at this like huge spread of beautiful food and then we tell them that it all came out of the dumpster. Um, so on one hand, we do that. And then on the other hand, which I see is even perhaps the more power- powerful work that we do, uh, is creating community around food.
1: It sounds like a really, really amazing amazing work that has been happening and i really really love how like the community building aspect of your your work and how it's like both internally like within the club there's people who you know you're able to like make food together and share that but then you also get to like see that firsthand and see how people like slow down and take time to eat with each other my next question for you is have you faced any big reactions from community members when they realize that you're serving food from dumpsters? And how do you respond to that?
0: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Um, It is often a bit of a shock um, to folks who are eating food with us. Uh, And many people have never heard of the community cabbage, even as UVic students, and we'll kind of stumble upon it one day and be like, oh, sweet, free food. Like, what is this? And we'll tell them a bit about uh, what we do. Uh, and resoundingly, I would say the reaction for most students is like they're really impressed. They're like, wow, like this is incredible. Like there's so much waste out there which I hadn't realized. And like this is amazing that you're that you're reclaiming it and, and doing this for students. Thank you. Um there is of course like like the one off where someone will be like, oh, like not gonna eat this food anymore. And and that's totally fine. People have different internalized barriers around like what food is and isn't acceptable to eat um so I totally respect that um over the years um there's definitely been like some resistance from the university itself I would say um they've never specifically told us that we can't operate um but definitely have refused to endorse the work that we do um like don't allow us to serve inside any of the buildings. So we have to kind of do it in this open public space outside of the student union building, uh, which they can't control um, and, and things like that. Um, And so of course, like I think from their end, there's concern around food safety, et cetera. And and we only serve cooked foods. We make sure that everything is first washed really well and then heated to a really high internal temperature. So there's not um, risk of contamination. Um, but then, also in a way, it, it does devalue the food that is being sold on campus. Uh, and on the days when, right outside a building where there's tons of food for sale, there's people offering really delicious free food that does detract from, from the sales of the food on campus as well. And um, so, I think from the university's perspective, it's not necessarily super welcome, um, but that's not the point. We're there to challenge the status quo and, and to kind of interrupt. Um, the flow of of daily industrial food culture mm-hmm. so um
1: yeah i'm mm-hmm. so i'm so interested to hear about like the university's views on it so that's really awesome that you can bring that to light i also was curious too if you can talk like on like a political and activistic perspective what are you hoping that community cabbage will achieve and like what message do you want people to hear through your work
0: mm-hmm um yeah, I would say there's often the like somewhat false assumption that the main point of community cabbage is to highlight the injustice of food waste and reduce food waste even, which, of course, that's not really what we're about. We're reducing a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of the amount of food that is wasted in a day. Um, and I would say really the message that many of us would like others to take home from the work that we do is... That food should be seen as a communal resource and a source of connection, and it should not be a commodity. Um, and I think we really like spin that narrative on its head when we take food for free. It's like so hard to find free sources of food, even growing food is expensive. Um, so we're taking food for free uh, and kind of inhabiting this space on the fringes of capitalism where we're not actually funding the industrial food system we're just benefiting from its wastes um, and then we're taking that food and turning it into something that is shared communally um, and anyone can partake in for free uh, people can learn cooking skills through the work that we do so really i almost see like the the fact that we do dumpster diving as this really convenient way that we're able to do the work that we do connecting people around food um, with a very, very low operating budget. Like we have a small amount of money from the uh, UVic student union each semester, and then it's all run on volunteer labor. Uh, and we kind of use the funds that we get to buy oil and spices and salt so that food actually tastes good. Um, but yeah, uh, to, to really reframe how we see food and to see it as something that anyone can partake in, that we're reducing as many barriers to access as possible. Uh, And I think that's really the power of the work that we do there.
1: Wow. Yeah. It's, it's really nice to hear too, like about like your upbringing and like the relationship with food you've had going up to this point. And it totally makes sense that now you're like working within this group that's so focused on building community around food. So I just think that's really cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And this next question is really, it's really funny because when you were talking about the, the work that you're doing with the learning modules at compost education center you when you talked about the creativity side you mentioned that there was one about dreaming a future and like seeing what that looks like for like young people mm-hmm. and i think that's so funny because i like had that total same idea and so i've been asking everyone like what they'd want to see differently in their food's future so i would love mm-hmm. to ask you like both long term and short term what what are you hoping for what would it look like mm-hmm. if you could like paint a picture of what your future of food would look like?
0: What would that be? Totally, that's an awesome question, and like, just want to say that I think it's so important that you ask things like that, so that our conversations don't focus around problems, but focus around vision and inspiration as well. Mm-hmm. Um, some things that come to mind for me, which I think exists only in a post-capitalist future, is uh, as I've alluded to already that food is not. A commodity. Food is not something that is bought, sold, traded purely on the basis of profits and price um, because that's how it functions under capitalism. Is It's yet another thing um, to profit from. And I think it feels inherently wrong to me um, that there are huge corporations profiting off of food uh, and making the prices higher than they need to be so that someone at the top of uh, that corporation can pay themselves a huge salary. Uh, So I would love to see a world um, along the lines of what you're describing in, in your own reconnection with land and seeing food as something that's like provided to you as a gift from the natural world. And that is like this amazing source of connection to our environment that like we can really see ourselves as a part of nature when we eat from natural systems that are all around us and are sustaining us. Um, so that's obviously a huge shift. That's my long-term vision, I guess, um, for the future of food. Um, but to have yeah, communities and uh, environments that we can exist in where we're, we nourish the land and the land feeds us. And um, that food is available to everyone to, to cultivate and to use responsibly. Uh, and isn't something that people are discriminated from their access to because they can't afford it um, that to me feels so inherently wrong. Uh, and I would love for us to, to radicalize that relationship with food. Um, so that it's once again, um, something that is, that is held in common and that connects us to land.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, I love asking this question because every time I do, I always just get so excited and just hearing people's (laughs) visions and like, there's so many different things that people bring up. I wish I could just like, mesh everyone's answer to this together and like paint this beautiful Mm -hmm. image of what our dream world would be yeah stitch all the answers
0: together call it poetry exactly (laughs) Uh, i guess i want to actually really quickly speak to my short-term vision because i feel like that was like a really lofty response and you did ask the the short term as well um i feel like like one of the Simplest steps I can see within the current structure of our society to begin working towards um, that beautiful food future um, would be creating more spaces where native plants, native food plants, agricultural food plants uh, can be cultivated. That is not uh, like privately owned mm-hmm. land. Um, and even if in the short term that looks like community organizations not for profits like having these spaces that you know like you're, you're having a space for people to grow food that at least is not for profit um and and places that people can access for very little money like most community gardens rent plots in the range of 20 to 40 dollars a year um so far lower than market value of rent would be um so that's i i see as an intermediary step um where we could begin getting
1: towards that idealistic future Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and that's so achievable in my mind like i think that's so simple and just even changing like street boulevards into little garden spaces and then have education Mm -hmm. and like or providing even like when you talked about like native plants just providing like signage so that people know these plants Mm -hmm. and recognize them by name that's yeah and it's such small not it's still a big project and you know we have ways to go but I think that it's so tangible for us today and I it's so hard sometimes to think about those short-term things because I don't know when I start envisioning the future I get so like envisionary and like think about all of these dreamy things but thinking about the things that we can do today is so important and like help build that mm-hmm. there yeah yeah wow. oh my goodness we covered so many so many great topics today and I'm so happy we had this conversation and you know, we covered so many things from, like, you know, your experience of your work with Compost Education Center and barriers to growing food and so much about, like, relationships with food, which I love. And I, I just love to hear about, like, if we could only have the listeners remember two things from this conversation, what would you want that to be?
0: Mm-hmm. That is a tricky question. Uh, I might need a moment to briefly gather my Absolutely. thoughts. Absolutely. Um. I think the first, yeah, the first takeaway that comes to mind um, is that I would love if anyone listening to this could try to find a way to reframe food for themselves as a source of connection, whether that's a source of connection to the land um, that you're living on, whether it's a source of connection to other people, to your broader community, to the people you live with, to your family. um, That I think that. Food is such a powerful tool um, for connection. And if you can find any way in your life um, to really live that, um, that's something that's completely changed my world. And I hope that maybe through our conversation, we've inspired other people to try to embrace that idea as well. Um, and then the, the one other big takeaway that comes to mind, uh, and, and I want listeners to, to think about this and internalize it because it would have saved me from so many years of struggle um, as an angry environmentalist uh, is to allow yourself to release the burden of individual responsibility for saving the world and remind yourself that it's not up to us as individuals. Um, we can't and we won't and we shouldn't try to save the world all alone. The The type of deep-rooted social change that's needed is something that we can only figure out together. Um, so, yeah, be kind to yourself and forgive yourself for not making the perfect consumer choices, uh, because that's not what it's about. Uh, It's all about relationships and intention and vision for a better world that we can create together. Um, So
1: I hope that that's something that folks can take away as well. Yes, absolutely. What perfect two things to summarize this conversation. Amazing. Awesome. Well, we are just at the end, and this conversation went on for so long. And I'm so I feel like we can just like keep talking about it <laughs> forever. <laughs> I should have warned you at the beginning that I was a storyteller, that you can't get a concise response out of me. <laughs> that's so perfect. And that's why I have like a podcast like this because I think that space is so important to offer people mm-hmm. and learn from. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for creating this project, by the way. Yeah. It's oh, my beautiful. goodness. Thank you so much for asking to be on it. I've been so inspired by these conversations and how natural it feels and how real, you know, authentic I feel more in my job, you know, and just Mm -hmm. sharing stories. Like that's that's all I know and that's all I have known. I'm not someone to go in front of a audience of people and share this presentation or workshop. Like I just want to share these real stories of our journeys Mm -hmm. through understanding food. Amazing. Okay. Well before we wrap up, do you have any last thing you want to mention or share?
0: Um, I suppose like the, the last thing that comes to mind uh, is since we did talk lots about barriers to growing food, maybe just for folks in the community, like um, to draw your attention to a couple of resources that could help reduce those barriers. If anyone's relating to some of the things we talked about and wondering how to go about changing that. Um, there's an awesome project um, called Growing Together Victoria that's been distributing free seedlings um some sometimes we're even distributing free soil and containers for growing food in and this is something that's kind of like sparked out of covid Um, but if anyone wants to do a quick google search of that it can be a great way to access resources for beginning to grow your own food Um, and it's it's free of cost it's happening throughout the city in different neighborhoods and so that's something really amazing that's going on Uh, and then also if if you're wanting any sort of information or advice about uh, organic gardening and ecological restoration and things. We have tons of free resources on the Compost Education Center website. Um, so would we'll just direct people that way as well, if you're wanting uh, to learn more.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you for adding that and giving people more things to become inspired off of through this podcast. Mm-hmm. And again, yeah, I really want to like reiterate the amazing resources that are both offered through compost education center on their website and then also like growing together has a enormous list of different uh online videos for people when they're just beginning to garden and mm-hmm. how to like feel support with that so i really really recommend both those things as well okay well this is it i'm so happy we had a conversation hannah and i really hope we can stay connected moving forward because i love having these conversations and i'd love to do this more on our own time too.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. It's been such a privilege to talk to you. I feel like I've read one of your articles in Concrete Garden and, and like heard tell of the amazing work you're doing around town. So it's, yeah, such an honor to be able to talk with you
1: and to share stories together. So thanks for your time. Thank you. Awesome. Well, I will check in with you soon and let's continue chatting. Mm -hmm. Thanks so much. Have a lovely day. You too. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Sprouting Conversations. If you had anything that resonated with you, I would love to hear about it in the comments below because we covered so much within this episode and I would just, I'd love to hear which things stood out to you. Of course, if you have anyone else in your life that you think would like this episode, please share it with them. If you like this episode, please like, subscribe, and Get in contact with the Youth Food Network in any way, all of that information will be below.